It's good to see everybody this morning. Special welcome to those of you joining us online. I know Todd and Alicia has had our football this week. There we go. All right. We're going to have a bomb from the back, huh? Yeah. All right. Great. So if you're new with us and you're like, what's up with this church and this football? Um, this goes all the way back to June. Um, and Cammie was talking about the fundamentals, and she referenced Coach Lombardi and how he would start every single season by calling the team together and beginning the first practice by saying, gentlemen, this is a football. And so those fundamentals that he was focused on are the very fundamentals of our faith that we focus on here at Four Mile Church. And we're in the middle of this sermon series uh, where we're learning about these fundamentals from Jesus himself. And as we unpack this, we're seeing how he's turning our world upside down. So each week, we hope that you feel less and less at home in this world because we're not made for this place. God is shaping us for his kingdom. And so we're at the tail end of this mini-series where Jesus is using six examples to explain to us what he means when he says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And so the scribes and Pharisees, as we've learned, were charged with teaching the law, but sometimes they get a little too focused on the letter of the law. And so we've learned how Jesus is showing us in his kingdom, he's as concerned about the internal intentions of our hearts as he is that we follow the letter of the law. Likewise, we learn that he isn't too interested in us creating schemes or formulas to get out of doing the right thing in his kingdom. And then, of course, last week we learned about quibbling and shirking and how we're not supposed to deny the call that we have to live up to our commitments in his kingdom. And so this week, we're going to look at the fifth one. And Jesus uses this very familiar Old Testament law, an eye for an eye, to teach us that we can't have a heart that desires to retaliate in his kingdom. And what we're going to learn is that the impulse to retaliate is driven largely by our desire to preserve or bolster our self-image. And so it's basically this whole retaliation thing is kind of a litmus test of sorts that shows us whether we think a little too much of ourselves. And so the main point is gonna be that we take our eyes off of ourself and we put them squarely on Christ alone. And in so doing, we will demonstrate the power of his amazing grace, the very song we just sang about a minute ago. So let's go before the Lord in prayer, let's ask his help and then we'll dig in. Father, we humble ourselves in your presence. We come before you this morning as mere beggars, pleading, for your help. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that you'd help us to learn exactly what you want us to learn, but especially how you call us to die to the world, to die to the people around us, and to die to ourselves. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 5, 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, 
turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All right, thanks, Justin. So this is one of those topics, an eye for an eye, that gets misapplied by believers and unbelievers alike. So we really got to knuckle down up front to make sure we understand whenever we see in Scripture this passage, an eye for an eye or a tooth for tooth or any of those. So that language of the Old Testament law is found all throughout Scripture. But I chose one that I think summarizes it well. So let's take a look at that. Exodus 21. It reads, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So I know what many of you are thinking right now, I get frustrated too. We had this really nice, tight passage that Justin read for us, and then the pastor shows up with this really long Old Testament like passage at the very beginning that we gotta unpack to understand it. But you gotta bear with me on this. It's really, really important that we understand this because we whiff it all the time whenever we read this. And not only that, this argument, an eye for an eye, is often used against our faith, so we really need to understand it. So if you get nothing else on it today, at least you'll know how to apply this in the future when you read it in Scripture. So first of all, we're just going to tear this apart quickly. This is all about, an eye for an eye, is all about how we are to right a wrong. It's coming to terms whenever we've disadvantaged someone. This is not retribution. So how do you see that? Well, up in green there, you'll see three pieces that help us see that. First, hitting a pregnant woman. Second, striking the eye of a slave. And third, knocking out a slave's tooth. So if you do those things, you need to square up with the other person, whether there's harm or there's no harm. Even women and slaves who happen to be second-class citizens back then, but notice it's not that they hit them back. It's that you settle up with them for the way you've disadvantaged them. Second, as you see in orange up there, this language is intended for the religious judges who adjudicated publicly contested disputes. So this law was never meant for day-to-day -day personal offenses. Third, it speaks to a spirit of fairness, eye for an eye. It's basically emphasizing a measured and just response about making restitution. So this has nothing to do with retribution. Fourth, note the list of those eight examples up there in blue that go from life for life all the way to stripe for stripe. It essentially implies a consistent upper bound. It ensures us against excessive 
retaliation. In other words, you shouldn't be killed for accidentally tipping over your neighbor's ox cart. So why is it necessary for us to guard against excessive retaliation? Well, because that's our nature. And it goes back to that anger thing we talked about a few weeks back. Anger causes all sorts of potentially reckless responses. It's those snowballs we were talking about. Now this eye for an eye law was also designed to prevent people from taking the law into their own hands. And this is where the scribes and Pharisees screwed it up the same way we probably would have too. First, they went beyond the point that this was just intended for judges settling public disputes. And they taught that it was a matter of personal application, that you should take matters into your own hands to make sure justice was rendered. Second, instead of seeing this law as an upper bound against excess retaliation, the scribes and Pharisees actually taught that it was your right and it was your duty to ensure that everyone received the full measure of retribution. So if someone gives you a door ding, it's your obligation to give them a door ding back. Now wouldn't that be fun? We're required by law then to carry a little hammer around in the trunk of our car. And so when you're pushing your grocery cart out and you see that little weird thing look on the side of your car and you're like, you gotta be kidding me, someone just gave me a door ding. It is your obligation to go to your trunk, to pull out your hammer and schwack it back. Now tell me, some of you out here, I'm not the only one that wants to do that, right? <laughs> so here's the thing about that, right? That's therapy right there, in your hand. That's therapy. Because those evil little door dings that people are just recklessly putting on your cars with no accountability. It's frustrating, isn't it? And here's the thing. That's actually, there's cameras everywhere. So if you're one of those door ding pirates, you gotta watch out. In fact, there's even cameras now on cars to catch you. So if you're one of those people doing this thing, you know, I'm one of those guys, like I park at the far end of the parking lot. Door dings drive me crazy. Because once you get one, you're stuck with it, right? So I'm like 100 meters from the nearest car. But invariably, no matter what, when I come out, there's always two cars sitting right next to me. And I can't figure this out. Um, and not only that, their driver's side doors are always pointing to me. So one of them pulled in and the other one backed in. And so if you're one of those door ding pirates, those cameras are gonna bust you. Um, and I don't know if it's because you're worried that um, you, know, you wanna get close and so you kind of fit in there, or if you're worried my truck is lonely in the back of the parking lot, but you don't need to park next to it, right? That's the whole thing. So I'm going on and on about this to show you how much this bothers us, doesn't it? Something as simple as a door ding, and yet we want to retaliate, don't we? We want to let them have it. And that's the whole point that we're learning here. It's the key to this entire passage is to understand that this eye for an eye was to guard against excessive retaliation. So I hope that we're clear on that point. So if this eye for an eye thing wasn't already hard enough to get our head around, what are we to make of this next line we see in the text? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to resist evil, 
But again, we have to understand this in its proper context to make sure we got it right. Now, fortunately, Jesus is going to give us four examples to explain what he's talking about here. But before we get into those, I want to mention one critical point. Notice up there in blue, you see the word anyone or one repeatedly. So this is Jesus now making this actually a personal thing. So he's taking a law that was made for the public officials that the Pharisees screwed up and made it personal, and they basically said, you should take all matters into your own hands and give the full measure of retribution. And Jesus is now saying, it is a personal thing, but it's not, no longer about retribution. In fact, you should do no retaliating at all. So that's the key as we move forward on this particular passage. Okay, so now when he uses these words, do not resist the one who is evil, notice then it has absolutely nothing to do with publicly standing against evil. Because this is all about how we respond to evil that is done to us personally. So that means you can't take this first out of context to justify pacifism or rejecting national security or arguing to disband law enforcement. It would be a complete distortion of this text to conclude that we're called to overlook or to condone evil. Rather, Jesus is focusing us on this response when evil is done to us personally. So what he's really talking about here is that this is all about grace. So let's be clear about what grace is. It's getting something that we don't deserve. And the quintessential Christian view of grace is the salvation story. We are enslaved to sin, we don't deserve salvation, but Jesus comes and dies on the cross for us. That's his, his example of grace for us, giving us something that we don't deserve. So to get a proper sense of where Jesus is taking us, think of it this way in the context of retaliation. If a burglar breaks into your home, by all means, restrain him, whatever it takes, but then give him something to eat, show him grace, even though he doesn't deserve it. Of course, all the while, you're waiting for the cops to come pick him up. But whatever you do, don't have a heart that wants to do harm to the burglar. So do you see what Jesus means here? So now to break this down by these four examples, I think this, this uh, main point will come out. So first, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this is a personal assault because it's slapping you across the right cheek. So just think about what it would take for you out there to slap me across the right cheek as you're looking at me. We've already seen Jesus taking an outsized focus on the right side of things, and we know about 90% of the people are right-handed. So in order to slap me on the right cheek, you'd have to give me a backhand. And a backhand, back in the day, was a significant insult. So much so that if you got one, word would spread super quickly. So our natural instinct then will be to clock them back, probably even harder. After all, we got an eye for an eye, and how dare he embarrass me like that? Well, let's think about why we want to smack him back. Is it really 
so he can feel the same pain that we did? Or is it more to preserve our dignity and our self-esteem? What will the world think of us if we tolerate such an offense? So if we're honest with ourselves, our desire to swing back is more about our worldly status. It's about our pride and our reputation. And that's what Jesus is focused on here when he teaches that we are to turn the other cheek. Meaning, we're to have a heart that once we've been insulted like this, that we don't mind being insulted over and over and over again. We are to reject our desire to preserve or bolster our self-image, even in the face of evil. In other words, we mustn't care what the world thinks of us. We're to die to our worldly status. And that's not easy because most of us have spent our lives building up our social standing. So how do we take our focus off of it? By simply responding in grace. By turning the other cheek to the world, even though they don't deserve it. Second, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. So this is yet another personal attack, but this time it's through the legal system. Someone demands your inner garment, and that's about as personal as it gets, because back then you had two garments that you wore, an inner garment, your tunic, and an outer garment, your cloak. So you can probably see where Jesus is going with this one. He's essentially saying, give them your inner and your outer garment, which leaves you standing there in the raw, in all your glory, right in front of the person who is suing you. And for most of us, that's just not a very appealing position to find ourselves in, is it? Can you imagine the shame and embarrassment associated with this? Again, do you see how it's all focused on our self-image? Jesus is teaching that we must put away all manner of building ourselves up in front of other people. Not only must we not care what the world thinks about us, but we also must not care what the people around us think of us, our enemies, our friends, our neighbors, even our family. We are to die to the world and to the people around us by taking our focus off of both. And you know, maybe the other person even deserves your tunic because we don't always treat people very well, but give them the cloak too something they don't deserve. Respond in grace. Third, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Again, a personal attack. This refers to the Roman custom of conscripting or forcing people to carry loads for them. The rule was that the Roman officials could make the Jews carry their bags for up to one mile at a time. So imagine that. You're going about your business, heading off to work, hanging out with the family, and all of a sudden, this random Roman official suddenly taps you to schlep their bag for a mile. Now, how personally humiliating. You're enslaved in a moment. It cuts to the very dignity and self-image of every human being. It's one thing if they ask for some help, but this was compulsory service, and it was often backbreaking work a complete infraction of our personal rights at the very core. 
But Jesus says, don't just carry it one mile, carry it two miles. Go the extra mile that is so lonely and rarely traveled. Don't be focused on your individual rights. Focus instead on doing your duty to respond in grace at all times. Give them something they don't deserve. Carry that bag twice as far. Now, of course, being able to respond like this requires a complete denial of self. So we die to the world, we die to the people around us, and we die to ourselves, taking our focus off of all three. And in a display of grace, we double the labor. Fourth, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So this one's a little different. It's still personal in nature, but it shifts from an assault or a demand to a request. Someone is begging you or asking to borrow something that belongs to you. They're not oppressing you. Furthermore, we're being called to give to those who we have no hope or expectation of ever receiving any kind of repayment. So this one is really all about how we're focused on our possessions and on our treasures, our cars, our houses, our jobs, our clothes, all our toys. There's a ton of self-esteem wrapped up in all of it. But when you take your eyes off the world, off the people around you, and off yourself, and you place the focus on Jesus, who's your real treasure, that can never be taken from you, the conditions are set where you're able to respond generously in grace, but primarily because you realize that you're a beggar too. We all are. Nothing we have belongs to us in the first place. Everything we have is a gift from God that we don't deserve. It's a grace, especially that gift from Jesus. And that's why we're not a church that's always trying to shake you down by passing a plate and get guilting you into giving. Rather, we're a church that preaches truth, which is all about grasping our depraved condition. We're morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, at enmity with God, unable to please him on our own. And when we're convicted of this truth and we receive full forgiveness and assurance of our salvation by Christ's blood, we will be utterly compelled to give generously as an act of worship out of the overflow of our hearts. We'll live out of a spirit of charity where we make ourselves available to the needs and demands of others. Do you see how the spirit of generosity is directly related to our sense of pride and ego and self-image? Because when we die to all three of these up here, the world, our neighbors, and ourselves, and live to Christ alone, even tithing a mere 10% doesn't even seem like that big of a deal anymore. We'll actually find ourselves going well beyond tithes to making generous offerings wherever it's needed, responding in grace. So when you step back and look at this teaching, it's really all about dying to self. It's that humility that Jesus started this whole Sermon on the Mount on when he laid out his standards of character in his kingdom with the Beatitudes. 
Paul David Tripp summarizes it well in his daily devotional. Let me read it to you. Coming to Jesus is not a negotiation, an agreement, or a contract. Coming to Jesus is a death, your death. Christ died so that you may live. And now he asks you to lose your life so that you may find life in him, real, abundant, and eternal life. Don't fight the death of your old life. Instead, celebrate the new life that is yours by grace and grace alone. And remember that your Savior will continue to call you to die. It is the way of life. So what a great summary of this truth that Jesus is teaching us today. We are to die to the expectations of this world, to the people around us, and especially to ourselves, and to live for Christ alone. The very one who gave us this supreme example, doing everything he's asking us to do on his way to the cross. He is faithful. He turned the other cheek, not caring what the world that he created thought of him. He's faithful. He gave his tunic and his cloak, stripped and beaten by the people he came to save. He's faithful. He went that extra mile by even allowing himself to be crucified, dying on the cross for our sins. You see, that red drop of blood up there, that's the key to everything. For us, it's the ultimate manifestation of God's grace. And it's the very source of our eternal joy and our peace. Because we're all born into the old life, represented by that dark, wide path leading to eternal destruction. And then when Christ convicts us of our depraved condition and we respond to his call to receive his saving grace, he justifies us in a moment. He makes us right before God, washed clean by that drop of blood, putting us right on that narrow path. You see, before we can live a life where we are not compelled to retaliate, we got to first die to that old life, to our status in the world, to the expectations of the people around us, and to our inflated sense of self. And we must be born again into this new life in Christ. Because when we're born again, we receive the Holy Spirit, and he walks with us, sanctifying us, making us more Christ-like every single day, providing us the strength that we need to live generously until the day when we are glorified in Christ's presence for all eternity. It's that same Holy Spirit strength, that meekness we talked about from the Beatitudes, that's required to prevent us from retaliating. It's why we depend so vitally on the Holy Spirit to meet those high expectations, those high standards that Jesus is setting out for us in his kingdom. Every situation in life gives us the opportunity to respond with grace. That is our duty as kingdom dwellers. And you know, grace is the very force that Jesus is using to flip the world on its head. So this week, let's all take our focus off of ourselves and place it on Christ alone. 
Lord, you created us, you sustain us, and you know the intentions of our hearts. We remain darkened by our insidious sin, but by your grace through the work of your Son on the cross, we can be assured that we will enter through that narrow gate and spend eternity in your glorious presence. Help us to die to the things of this world, to the expectations of our neighbor, and to the very pride and ego that bolsters our inflated sense of self. May we live to Christ alone. We ask this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. So for response time today, I invite you to spend some time begging Jesus for some help on this. It's not easy. It's not easy to put the things of the world away, to put the things about the people around us and their expectations for us away, and certainly the expectations that we have for ourselves. But spend some time asking Jesus for that help. Ask him to help you this week to put your eyes on him and to live generously the way he calls us to. So the band's going to sing a song now. You're welcome to just remain in prayer or make the song your prayer. The words will be up. Feel free to join along with them. And at the end, we'll all stand and sing our final song together. Mm -hmm.